I was in my second year of medical school at UCLA when I'm going through this, this crisis of trying to disprove Christianity, and I'm, I'm, I'm hating it. I'm absolutely hating it. I'm spending time in the library at UCLA um, researching, trying to see the things that I can disprove. Um, this, in culmination with other events, I won't bore you with the whole story, but basically what I ended up finding out was I can only prove the things that can be proven in the scripture. You know, the archaeological dates and times, facts, figures, math, science in the, in the scriptures. And that disturbed me as an atheist greatly, as, as you can imagine. And through God's grace and the course of events, I ended up getting saved. So I was in my second year of medical school, decided medicine wasn't for me, dropped out. Um, parents were thrilled about that decision. Ended up enrolling in California Baptist University a few days later um, with a degree in theology, apologetics, and, and business, finished my business degree. But then I soon discovered after my apologetics degree, does anyone not know what apologetics is? Let's clarify that one. Okay, apologetics is just a fancy word. It means that I love to defend and I love to prove the Bible and Christianity to be true. It comes from the Greek word apologia, which means to give a, a verbal defense for. Uh, where we get that term from is that verse in 1 Timothy where it says, be ready and willing always to give a defense of anyone that asks you of the hope that is in you with what? With meekness and gentleness and fear and love, right? So you can't beat someone over the head with uh, apologetics. So the point with that is, why are we here? Meaning not only the existence of humans, but, but why are we here as a church? What's, what's our reason? See, when I was going through my crisis of faith and I would ask Christians these questions, and they were tough questions. Where did God come from, right? Um, you know, how do you explain evolutionary theory or starlight and time, all these questions. And usually I got the same boring answers. What it usually was, was, oh, you have to have faith or you have to just pray about it, which didn't make sense to me, right? For me, I'm the particular type of guy, in order to get here in my heart, you gotta go through here first, my head. It's just the way I'm wired. I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but it's just the way I'm designed. So with that in mind, why are we here? Well, I wanna start out, uh, as you can see behind us, Whenever I teach these seminars, and uh, this is kind of a culmination, a meshing of what we're going through in Sunday school, so those folks that have listened to me ramble on in Sunday school, I'm sorry, this will be a little bit of a repeat, but, but why, do I, why do I do this? Why am I here? What, what are we meanting, uh, meaning to accomplish? So the point is, I want to strengthen your faith in God's word. It's absolutely true from cover to cover. It took me a long road to figure that one out, and I'm 100% sold out on that fact, absolutely. If you're not saved, I'll be very upfront. I'm gonna try and convert you. I'm absolutely gonna try and give evidences. Why? Why do I wanna convert you? Do I gain something out of that, that picture? No, not at all. I absolutely don't. But I do know what's coming, and it's nothing good. It's nothing that we wanna hang out for, right? So those of us that we love and we care about, if you're not saved yet, we're after you. The other part is, for if you are saved and you're not doing much for the Lord or anything for the Lord, we're going to try and make you real uncomfortable. It doesn't mean that everyone has to be up here teaching or you have to be street preaching or whatever, but the Great Commission wasn't just a suggestion, right? When Christ left this earth, he gave us a very specific command. He said, go into all the earth, all the world, and preach the gospel, period. That is what we are commanded to do, is to share that truth with 
everyone in some form or another, okay? So I hope to maybe get your appetite a little bit wet tonight with those facts on how we can uh, share that truth and, and what it means to be a Christian. So has anyone here started their life like me, an atheist that believed God absolutely did not exist? Oh yeah, that's right, you did, Mike. Okay. So Dr. Strobach and I are kind of along the same wavelength, except you know, he was my arch rival across the, the valley there at Loma Linda while I was at UCLA. But um, similar, similar schools and similar ideas. We're, we're both wired the same way, that, that we have to, um, it has to go through our mind first in order to make sense. So what is a life lived like? What does it look like without believing in the existence of God? So life is ultimately meaningless without God, if you think about it, right? If God doesn't exist, your life is doomed to end in death, then ultimately it doesn't matter how you live, right? What I want to get the point across, okay, um, let's, let's kind of poke a topic that's happening in, in today's culture. So we have a lot of cancel culture, we have a lot of... Um, Black Lives Matter, we have a lot of uh, divisiveness in this country, and, and we're talking about a lot of things that should be talked about. But here's my question, okay? The atrocities that has happened in history, slavery or um, genocide or any of those things that, that we've experienced in even our short history as a country, let's take slavery for one. My point is this, if you don't believe that each and individual human being, regardless of race, religion, color, anything, if you don't believe that they are a special creative act from God, then what does it matter? Why is it morally wrong for one human being to own another if we're just the byproduct of a cosmic burp that happened four and a half billion years ago on pure accidental chance? Can anyone answer that question? If we have no intrinsic worth, right, and we're just an accident, why? Why would it be wrong for one human to own another? It wouldn't, exactly. That's the scary answer, right? That's a, a very, very scary answer of what life looks like without the existence of God. Sure, someone's life might have relative significance, meaning the here and now, in that maybe they influenced others or they affected the course of history, but ultimately mankind itself is doomed to perish in the heat death of the universe. It makes no difference who you are or what you do. Your life is completely inconsequential. Without God, we completely live without hope. If God doesn't exist, then we must ultimately live without any single hope. If there's no God, there's ultimately no hope for deliverance from the shortcomings of our finite existence. So, for example, there's no hope for deliverance from evil, right? Although many people ask how God could create a world involving so much evil, by far most of the suffering in the world is due to man's own inhumanity to man, as we just went over with the brief example of extreme racism and, and slavery, right? The horror of two world wars during the last century effectively destroyed the 19th century's naive optimism about human progress. We're not getting better, folks. We are getting worse towards each other, and we're finding more efficient ways to do it. If God doesn't exist, then we're locked without hope in a world filled with gratuitous and unredeemed suffering, and there's no hope for deliverance from evil at all. However, if God does exist, you can know his love personally, and that is the absolute most amazing thing. Then the only thing there is is meaning and hope, but there's also the possibility of knowing, coming to know God and his love personally. Think of it. So that's the infinite God 
who created the entire universe to be our personal savior, the king and creator of everything that there is, deemed it necessary to save us. Clearly, if God exists, it makes only a tremendous difference for mankind in general, but it could make a life-changing difference for an individual as well. Does that make sense? Extremely life-changing. God makes sense on the origin of the universe. So this is where I'm going to get into creation a little bit. Okay, there's two differing worldviews today, right? The Christian worldview says God, in the beginning, created everything. Genesis 1-1, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But that begs a very significant question. When exactly was the beginning, right? The creationist says that was a definite point in time. There was nothing, and then there was something. God spoke it into existence. The atheistic evolutionist has two theories about it. Either they say it was billions upon billions of years ago, or it always was. Have you guys ever heard that theory yet? That the universe has always existed? It never had a definite creation or a definite point in time? But that's completely illogical. It doesn't make any sense. Here's why. Just think about it for a minute. If the universe never had a beginning, then that means that the number of past events in the history of the universe is actually infinite. But mathematicians recognize the existence of an actually infinite number of things leads to self-contradictions. Let me give you an example. What's infinity minus infinity? <laughs> exactly, right? You, you get where I'm going at. And this proves that infinity is just a construct in your mind. It can't be a tangible thing because you get contradictory answers. So you can't have a universe that always was. You have to have an absolute beginning. Now, to be very clear, I'm going to make sure you guys understand where I'm coming from. And I am what's known as a young earth creationist. I believe that the Bible teaches a literal seven-day, 24-hour period creation. I believe it teaches it right about a time of about 66 to 6,800 years ago is when that creation took place. How do I get that number? Well, if you look at the charts, and I have charted it out before. This was before I was married and had a life. But I, I, I charted it out, and, and you can look at the dates, right? You can see that, you know, um, Seth or Adam was 150 years old when Seth was born, and you just keep going down the line. And, and you get a rough idea of about 66, 6,800 years ago, okay? I'm not one of those guys that says, oh, it happened on October 21st, 4004 BC at, you know, 1202 in the afternoon, okay? No, 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 you can't get that specific. However, I, I do think it was created in the afternoon because God did it right before Eve. <laughs> <laughs> so, the origin of the universe. This is the stuff, why am I passionate about this? Well, um, my kids went to public school, I went to public school. The stuff that is being taught in our own towns in public schools that we as taxpayers are paying for is sometimes insane, right? It's not science at all. We take a look at the origin of the universe. Now, anyone know what the Big Bang Theory actually says? This was one of the main things that led me to drop out of medical school all those years ago. Okay, I was sitting in class, the professor ended up saying, throughout all the scientific speech, but what he ended up saying was, in the beginning, nothing exploded and produced everything. What? Raise my hand. Yes, Mr. Kirk. Did you just say nothing exploded and produced everything? Yes. 
I'm paying $63,000 a year to learn that nothing explodes and produces everything? Yes. Okay. <laughs> so a couple problems with that, Professor. From nothing, nothing comes. My best friend I went to high school with, he's now in the CIA, we've gotten to play with some very cool explosives, trust me. And I have never seen an explosion produce anything. It messes some stuff up. It will never build a thing, okay? So how can an explosion out of nothing produce everything? That doesn't make any sense. Now here's HBJ, General Science, 1989, page 362. This is what they're teaching. I, I collect science textbooks. This is what they're teaching our kids. Nothing really means nothing. <laughs> really, you had to cut down a tree to print that. Okay. April 2002, Discover Magazine. Where did everything come from? The universe burst into something from absolutely nothing. Zero, nada. And as it got bitter, bigger, it became filled with even more stuff that came from absolutely nowhere. How is that possible? Ask Alan Guth. His theory of inflation helps explain everything. Here it is. The observable universe could have evolved from an infinitesimal region. That means dot. It's then tempting to go one step further and speculate that the entire universe evolved from literally nothing. This is what we as taxpayers are paying to have our children be taught. This is not science, folks. And this was always my gripe. Well, not always, but after I, I became a servant of the Lord, this was my biggest gripe. If you want to teach a theory in school, fine, go ahead, but please call it a theory, okay? We are on opposite ends of the spectrum. Both are faith-based systems, right? Can I intrinsically, scientifically prove creation science? No, not by the laws of science. I can't, by the scientific method, right? The scientific method means it has to be observable and repeatable processes that can be measurable. I can't do that from the beginning of creation. It was done once. So that is a theory, right? Evolution. Also, they believe billions of years ago, things happened. It also is a theory, okay? And I want both sides of the coin to be taught. I don't want one to be heavier weighted than the others. So a couple questions getting onto that existence of God in the age of the earth. So where did the matter come from, right? That's the whole idea of the Big Bang Theory, that all of the matter in the universe came together. Don't know where that matter came from. It came together, squish, 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 and all of a sudden it started to spin, start to spin, rotate, rotate, boom, exploded, Big Bang. Here we go, things start forming. Where did the matter come from? Haven't been able to answer that question yet. Where did the laws come from? Gravity, centrifugal force, inertia, etc. Where did those come from? And why aren't the laws still evolving? Where did the energy come from? I mean, somebody had to buy the gas to run this machine, right? Chemistry mysteries. How many elements do we have in the periodic table? Anybody know? Huh? Exactly. Yep. Do you guys know that the sun is composed of 98% hydrogen or helium? Okay. That's just two out of the 108. Less than 1% of Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars is hydrogen or helium. If it came from all the same stuff, why isn't the composition at least the same percentages? Well, it gets even worse from there. Why are the nine planets so different from each other and from the sun? So let me teach you guys a little bit of physics real quick, okay? There's something called the law of conservation of angular momentum. Do you guys remember when we were little, those uh, metal merry-go-rounds at the park with the bars that you'd hold on to, okay? <laughs> Those were definitely fun. But uh, let's do a little experiment. Let's take fourth graders, we'll put it on there, okay? And we'll take the Seahawks, say, to go spin this thing counterclockwise. 
at about 10 miles an hour, what's going on? The kids are like, you know, faster, faster, come on, can't you go faster? 20 miles an hour, they're still like, come on, go faster, go faster, go faster. About 30 miles an hour, they're hanging on for dear life. About 50 miles an hour, what happens? Kid comes flying off the merry-go-round. But here's the interesting part. Now, this is a physical Newtonian law. It's called the law of conservation of angular momentum. So we're rotating this merry-go-round counterclockwise. When the kid flies off, he or she itself will be spinning counterclockwise until it encounters resistance, like a tree or the ground, right? So, but the interesting part about this, do you guys realize three of the nine planets rotate clockwise? How is that possible? Not only do they rotate clockwise, you have seven out of nine of Jupiter's moons that not only rotate the wrong direction, but they have the wrong orbit. They come so close that astronomers first thought that they were going to hit each other. How's that possible, given that law that I just taught you? It's not, right? It can't happen that way. If the Big Bang Theory were true, matter would be evenly distributed. Do you know what I mean by that? So if you have all this matter coming together, okay, it's, it's compressing, squishing, it starts to spin, it explodes, goes off everywhere, you should have an evenly distributed amount of matter all throughout the universe. But that's not at all what we see. The universe is, quote, lumpy. There's clusters of stars and then great voids. So one of my favorite verses and thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens and the works of thine hands, they shall perish, but thou remains, and they shall wax old as does a garment. Okay? What does that mean? What science is that teaching us? It's the second law of thermodynamics. Everything to- ends towards disorder and chaos, right? Anyone ever wake up in the first thing in the morning, your hairdo looks something like that, <laughs> right? Our hair is not perfectly combed first thing in the morning. What else heads towards order and this chaos? Well, here's Sue at age 20. Here's Sue at 90. Here's Sue again at age 3,000. <laughs> so my point, anyone knows this, even a fifth grader knows that if you leave something alone long enough, it doesn't get better with time, right? Another way of stating the second law is the universe is constantly getting more disorderly. In fact, all we have to do is nothing and everything deteriorates. Collapses, breaks down, wears out, all by itself. And that is what the second law is all about. Why do I bring up this point? So if the universe was eternal, how do we have this law? (laughs) I like that answer. (laughs) Politics, that's great. Evolutionists assume, okay, well, let me back up a bit. So they say, when when I've had these debates and these discussions at college campuses in the past, and I know the argument, the argument goes something like this. Well, Kirk, you're so stupid. Don't you know if you add energy, you could overcome the laws of entropy? I understand the argument, right? I, I, I get it. However, adding energy will overcome the second law of thermodynamics according to their um, theory. My point remains, the universe is a closed system. Adding energy is extremely destructive without a complex mechanism to harness that energy. The Japanese added a lot of energy to Pearl Harbor in 1941. Did it improve anything? No. We added lots of energy in kind to Japan in World War II. We didn't organize anything over there either. The sun's energy will absolutely destroy your roof. It'll destroy your entire house. It'll destroy your vinyl top on your car and your upholstery, and it'll destroy your paint job. 
There's only one complex mechanism that can harness that sun's energy and make it productive into something useful. Anyone know what that mechanism is? What's that? It is, but it's in creation. It's chlorophyll, right, inside of plants. A very, very complex molecule called chlorophyll can harness the sun's energy. One leaf cell is more complex than an entire city. That is the only mechanism we know that can harness the energy to produce something good out of it. And again, <laughs> here we go with, with our, our systems uh, that we're being taught. Was your ancestor a sea sponge? This is your ancestor. Discover Magazine, okay? November 2004, page 64. Is SpongeBob our oldest ancestor? It's difficult to imagine that we could have evolved from something along these lines. That's what hundreds of millions of years of natural selection will do to a species. This is exactly what it's saying. We can thank our square pants friend from Bikini Bottom for paving the way for more complex life on Earth. This was literally in 2004 Discover Magazine. Who's your daddy, right? This would be our ancestor. Now tell me, does this make sense for a rational thinking mind? I don't believe it does. I didn't believe it did back then either. So why didn't I believe in creation from the get-go? Anyone want to hazard a guess? Sin, guys. Absolute sin. I want to run away from a creator God because what does a creator God make me do? It makes me obedient. It makes me accountable to something outside of myself. Absolutely. You are an animal and share a common heritage with earthworms. It's biology, visualizing life. Holt, 1994. Your kids go ape in school. This is what Barbara Reynolds said. Here's why. Misbehavior tops the list of what parents and teachers worry about, and that's exactly where such concerns belong, considering that kids are not being taught in school. In most schools, Johnetta and Johnny are being taught evolution, that humankind evolved from apes. The issue came to the forefront recently because a school district near San Diego had the good sense to adopt the policy of teaching creationism, much of this may have critics, including USA Today's editorial page. Anyone ever look at the world today and wonder why it's absolutely on fire? So I'm just an animal? Okay. If we teach our kids that there are no creative acts, that they are absolutely nothing special, that they are nothing more than an accidental byproduct of a cosmic burp four and a half billion years ago, and rain came down and rained on rocks and formed a primordial soup, and they just crawled out of it. How do you think they're going to behave? What do you think their life choices are going to be like? We teach the students they're animals. What effect do you think that this is going to have? We're reaping what we sow. Absolutely. Kids are being taught that there are no absolutes. Let me get on another little tangent about the no absolutes before, okay? Regardless of anyone um, likes firearms or not, that's not part of this discussion, but I do want to point out a fact. Many of us are old enough in here to remember when you can order a 12-gauge shotgun out of the Sears catalog, and it would be delivered in the mail. Please tell me, during those times, how many mass shootings did we have? None. Was it the weapon's fault? Was it the access to the weapon's fault? Or was it the sin within the humanity's fault, right? It has never been against the law to teach creation in public schools. Do you guys know that, by the way? It absolutely isn't against the law to teach creation. You cannot use it to proselytize, right? You can't use it to convert a student to Christianity, but it is not against the law to teach creation in public schools. This is from Stephen Jay Gould, not a Christian, by the way, 
No statute exists in any state to bar instruction in creation science. It can be taught before, and it can be taught now. Hmm. So, on to the next point. Ideas have consequences. And as Dr. Strobach said, bad ideas have victims. They absolutely do. 1963, do you guys that were around then remember a lady by the name of Madeline Murray O'Hare? She effectively removed prayer from public schools. Gone. What happened thereafter? Okay, before and, and after during that time. So before that time, there was about two to 3,000 words on evolution. In 1963, there was over 33,089 words. This is in public school textbooks. So what happened to cause this? Anyone remember what was going on during this time? The space race, right? The Russians beat us in the space race, and Americans panicked. Pinky and the brain folks who want to control the world took advantage of the panic to actually advance their agenda. What did they end up doing? Well, we were taught that because Soviets were ahead in the space race, they were going to lead the world in all of scientific advancement. Congress actually went to President Eisenhower at the time and said, we need more evolution taught in schools. He gave, them, gave it to him, a billion dollars, to increase evolutionary theory taught in public schools. Somehow they made the correlation that evolutionary theory being taught in public schools equals bringing a rocket into outer space. I have no idea how they made that correlation, but they did. 1959 was the 100-year anniversary of Charles Darwin's book, The Origin of the Species. Okay. Those of you that are in my Sunday school class have heard me say this before, but in my personal library, I have an original 1859 version of Charles Darwin's On the Origin of the Species. That's not the entire title, folks. They've redacted the entire title. The actual title of that book is On the Origin of the Species or the Preservation of Races Through the Struggle of Life. Or, excuse me, the Preservation of Favored Races Through the Struggle of Life. Huh. Can you think of anyone else in history that may have thought that there were favored races? Hitler, Pol Pot, Mao Zedong, Castro, I, uh, the list goes on, right? Eisenhower asked Congress for a billion dollars, remember I told you that, and they gave it to him for the promotion of evolution. What happened thereafter? Then we get 33,089 words of evolution in public schools. Here she is, Madeline Murray O'Hare. Liberty's chief foe is theology. So after that, what happens? This is the percentage of teen girls who had premarital sex from 1963 on up. Does that look like a linear or an exponential graph after that time? It is. Sexually transmitted diseases, gonorrhea, ages 10 to 14 went up 385%. Yes, I said age 10 to 14 after this time, 385%. Birth rates for unwed teenage girls, again, age 10 to 14, they went up 100%, doubled. Pregnancies up 553%. Out of wedlock births as percentage of births. 40.7% of all 2012 births were out of wedlock. Almost half. Fatherless homes account for, now this actually has to be updated. My wife and I, I think you know we're involved in Prisoners for Christ at Juvie. These numbers are actually much worse today. Um, but the ones that we have is 53% of teen mothers, this is all with fatherless homes, 63% of youth suicides, 71% high school dropouts, 85% of youth in prison, 90% of homeless and runaway children. I would add about another almost 15% to each of those numbers. It's staggering. In, what, eight years of doing prison ministry, I think we've encountered three 
kids that have lived with uh, both biological mom and dad married at home in eight years. I mean, how many hundreds or thousands of kids have we seen in that time? I, I don't know. However, if you are one of those children that came from those types of homes, does that mean that God doesn't have a plan for you, that there's nothing you can do for the Lord? Absolutely not. I bring up Timothy. To Timothy, my dearly beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. God will use any who ask. Timothy wasn't supposed to be. Do anyone know why? Why Timothy was one of those births that wasn't supposed to happen? Exactly. Yep. Greek and Jew. So his mom was a Jew. His dad was a Greek. Timothy was a half-breed that wasn't even supposed to be born. But we know how God used him absolutely mightily. So your circumstances, let me be very clear, doesn't dictate how God can use you. Not even in the slightest. Trust me, coming from an atheistic background, that's not the half of it. I didn't come from the best circumstances. But God, in his great mercy, saw it fit to still use me for his kingdom. I don't know why, (laughs) to be honest. When I look at myself, I'm no great big shakes. But God can use any of us, and it's amazing. So unmarried couples living together after 1963, a 725% increase. Do you think that's coincidental? After prayer was completely removed from public schools, 725% increase. 1,700% increase now. Divorce rates as of 1998, average length of U.S. marriages is 7.2 years. The uh, 68% of second marriages end in divorce. Child abuse went up 2,300% the following year. I don't think that these facts are coincidental. I think ideas have extreme consequences. I think we need to learn these things so that we can be effective in our own individual communities. Illegal drug use went up 6,000% of youth who have used illegal drugs since 1963. Violent crime offenses up 995%. Anyone remember when high school used to look like that? Yeah, Not of us, uh, a lot of us aren't that old to remember those times, and that's my point, right? An inanimate object isn't evil in and of itself. Something happened within our young people to produce these type of violent society that we now live in. Number of people killed by school shootings by decade after 1963. 142 school shootings since January of 2013. The SAT total scores plummeted after that point. Absolutely plummeted. The SAT has had to dumb down its test three times since 1963 in order to get good enough scores. Here it is, Chicago Tribune, April 9th, 1995. New scores will be higher, but standards lower from the SATs. They are the lowest level in 10 years, fueling worries about high schools. Anyone that's in education knows the worry about standardized tests. A lot of teachers worry that their students won't pass them. They're not? Wow. Teen suicide rates since 1963. Are you guys noticing a trend yet? of the effect of these dangerous ideas of what they've had to our society. Okay, so now going back to, I only got about five minutes left, but going back to the point, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. When? When was the beginning? I think that that is a paramount, yeah, Roger. Oh, I do? 
Oh, Ben told me like 40 minutes-ish of teaching. <laughs> cool. Okay, because I've been up here yammering for 36 minutes already. <laughs> so, okay. Uh, as long as you guys aren't bored and ready to... Okay. So, I think that question is absolutely paramount. When was the beginning? And why is that paramount? Because how many times do we read in the New Testament when Jesus says, has it not been so since the beginning? Jesus himself references the beginning, right? What about when the Pharisees asked Jesus about divorce? They were trying to trip him up. What did he reference? He referenced Genesis 1 through 3 all the time, okay? So he held a very high standard of those chapters. So I want to get into that point of how reliable are those chapters? Can we trust those? So let's say you are going on a scuba diving expedition, okay? And you go scuba diving and you find this sunken treasure ship. And this sunken treasure ship has a chest full of gold coins with different dates on it. And I ask you, when did that ship sink? What can you tell me? Exactly, it'd have to be sometime after 1750, right? After the latest date uh, in that, that coin chest. Well, how do you know that? How do you know that it has to be after the latest date of, of what, it's just common sense, right? So what I'm getting at is there's something that the scientists use um, called radiocarbon dating, a C14 dating or potassium argon. Um, there's problems with, with those. There, there's major problems with carbon dating. Let me tell you, tell you the problems, okay? The idea of carbon-14 dating is this, that there's a, a amount of carbon raining from the atmosphere onto uh, an organic object, like a dinosaur bone, and once we dig it up, we measure the level of carbon that's left on it, and we can figure out how long that bone has been lying there. Here's the problem. If when you guys walked in tonight, I had a candle here burning on, on the table, okay? I didn't light it, you guys had already walked in, it was been burning. And I asked you, how long has this candle been burning? I don't know. You have to know how tall the candle was when I first lit it, then you can measure the rate of burn, and then you can get an idea of when I first lit it, right? That's the problem with potassium argon and carbon-14 dating. We have no idea how long or how much carbon has been raining down, and they're assuming that it's the same amount all throughout history. Well, that doesn't make any sense. So when you find a dinosaur bone in the ground, you only know one thing. It died. That's the only thing we can know about it. It's not like we end up seeing uh, a brachiosaurus toe bone when we discover it in the earth, and it doesn't say made by a dinosaur in 70 million BC in Taiwan, right? We don't get the luxury of that stamp. So how old is the earth? When was the beginning? The, <laughs> that's what they say, yeah. There are numerous scientific ways to show that the universe is actually not billions of years old. What's the first one? How about the amount of people here on the planet? The population growth chart. If the Earth were billions upon billions of years old, we had about one billion people in the year 1810 on the entire planet, okay? Here's right around the birth of Christ. Estimated population about a quarter billion. Now, using that same math, okay, today we would have roughly 150,000 people per square inch on the planet. Per square inch. 
Now that would be a crowded planet, right? Just by using that number of what we know. Yeah. No, they're not. Right. And, th and that's a big problem with the assumption is that they're assuming that they're constant. So, right, right. Um, you, you're kind of getting ahead, but I'm glad you brought that up. But, but yeah, so um, you guys remember Charles Darwin, right? Very famous, came up with the modern theory of evolution. Anyone know how um, Charlie came up with that theory? He went sailing on a ship when he was a young kid, the HMS Beagle, for about four years. And he took a couple books with him. One, of course, was his Bible because his dad was a pastor. And the other one he took was um, a young geologist who was coming out with a theory called Uniformitarian Geology. His name was Charles Lyell, and he took his book with him. And his book that Charles Darwin wrote in the book was proposing the idea that everything happens now the same as it always has that we have the same constant rate of erosion, we have the same constant rate of carbon, we have the same constant rate of rain, that everything is the same. Well, that, as we know, doesn't work. So the current population growth worldwide is about 1.7% annually. I know it doesn't sound like much when applied to a large and growing larger population, but the results of compound growth on this population scale can be absolutely staggering. If the population growth rate were charted backwards in time from today, at a slower rate of only half a percent annually, less than one-third of today's actual rate, okay, the result would be a handful of people alive about 4,500 years ago. That's conservative, right? I'm, I'm bringing it down to half a percent instead of 1.7 percent. So just as Noah's post-flood world population would have been. Now consider if the population growth rate were an extremely slow place of one one-hundredth of a percent annually. That's one 170th of today's actual growth. At that rate, starting at just a million years ago, okay, extremely slow population rate, a million years ago, an adventurous monkey and his wife stood up, right, considered people, it would mean that doubling the number of people every 7,000 years, or on average two increased to four in 7,000 years and became eight after 7,000 more, etc. A stunning 142 doublings would occur in one million years at that super, super slow rate. That's only one one hundredth of a percent annual population growth. What does that mean? That's 10 followed by 43 zeros in number of people on the earth today, what it should be. That's only a million years old for the age of the earth. That doesn't work out, right? Anyone ever think that the earth is too crowded? You guys ever drive across Kansas or West Texas? Oh my gosh, for three days? Right? And you're still driving across West Texas? Based on DNA studies, scientists are now putting forth the theory that there was a catastrophe about 70,000 years ago that reduced the human population to a few thousand, creating a genetic bottleneck. How about the supernova? Astronomers have observed that about every 30 years, a star dies and explodes into a supernova, right? But we've never seen a star being born. Again, if the universe is eternal, things are always happening the way they always are, why don't we ever see stars being born? Why do we only see them die? If it's billions of years old, how come there are less than 30 or 300 supernovas that we have been able to observe? There should be several hundred million of them. Are the stars wrong or is evolutionary theory wrong? Textbooks teach it takes billions of years for a star to evolve from a red giant to a white dwarf. However, Egyptian hieroglyphs from 2000 BC describe Sirius as a red star. It's now a white dwarf. Cicero in 50 BC stated Sirius was red. Seneca described Sirius as being redder than Mars. Ptolemy listed Sirius as one of the six red stars in 150 AD. 
Today, it's a white star binary. Textbooks say it should have taken billions of years to have happened. Hmm. Uh, just a supergiant. It's basically the next stage that our sun will go into. Jupiter is cooling off. Now, the rotation of the Earth also is slowing down. Do you guys know that? Yep, we, you feel it? <laughs> feel it e each year wrong? So the rotation of the Earth is slowing down, okay? Now, for the, the university professors, I know this will be a complicated theory, but I, I want to make sure they understand. If the Earth is slowing down, that means it used to be going faster, <laughs> right? So if it's used to be going faster, that's not a problem if the Earth is only 6,000 years ago. It is a huge problem if the Earth is billions of years old. What does rotation on the Earth or the rate of spin on the Earth control? Well, it controls the Coriolis effect of the winds. Can you imagine if the Earth was triple or quadruple the speed, what the winds would be like now? Imagine your day, right? Because remember, one full rotation of the Earth is a, is a day. You know, you'd wake up, go to bed, wake up, go to bed, wake up, go to bed. I mean, it'd be nuts. You would never be able to get anything done. The centrifugal force alone would have been horrific. It's like that ride at the fair that you stick to the wall and then you puke afterwards. It's like that thing, okay? So, the moon's orbit and its circular path around the Earth are indeed getting larger at a rate of about 3.8 centimeters per year. So, we are, we are losing our moon, guys. It's slowly getting further and further away from us. Again, if the moon is getting further away from us, that means it used to be closer. <laughs> it used to be much closer. Okay, a thousand years ago, using that rate, it was about 125 feet closer than it is now. A million years ago, 28.4 miles closer. 10 million years ago, 284 miles closer. 100 million years ago, 2,840 miles closer. A billion years ago is 28,400 miles closer. 1.4 billion years ago, it was on top of us. So, again, more, more science I want to teach you guys, more, um, more math. There's something called the inverse square law when it comes to gravitational pull. Okay, what does it mean? So, the inverse square law means that you take the force of attraction between two objects, and it's inversely proportional to the square of the distance between them. That means if you move something closer by a third, you inverse it, so three over one, then you square it. That means the gravity, nine, right? Three squared is nine. That means it's nine times more powerful a third of the way closer. Does that make sense? Okay. Anyone know what gravitational phenomena that the moon controls here on the Earth? Yeah, the tides. So if we had nine times greater, that's only a third closer distance of the moon to the Earth, Nine times the effect of the tides. Can you imagine what that would be like? We would have a worldwide flood about four times a day. We can only handle one a day, I mean, you know, but to have that much would be completely cataclysmic. So that explains what happens to all the tall dinosaurs. They got mooned. <laughs> now, what about the origin of the moon? Where did that come from? Well, they say the origin of the moon is still unresolved. The best explanation is the moon was created in its present orbit about 6,000 years ago. That's evolutionary scientists say that. Huh, kind of along my timeline with creation, about 6,000 years ago. Interesting. Does the Bible match evolution? Okay, so here's an issue with me. Um, and in school, I discovered this, is a lot of well-meaning Christians, we have great faith in the word of God, 
we go to school, we learn all these great science and math and everything else in college, and somehow we can't reconcile them together. So something has got to go. Well, we start to concede and we start to have little compromises in what the scriptures actually teach. And are they coherent with each other? Does evolutionary theory match with biblical theology? It absolutely doesn't. The Bible teaches the earth before the sun, evolution, sun before the earth, oceans before land, evolution, land before oceans, land, plants first in the Bible, Evolution teaches marine life first. Remember, it rained on the rocks for millions of years. Whales before insects, and then insects before whales in evolutionary theory. Magnets lose their strength with time. Okay? Same thing with our magnetic poles in the earth. It is weakening. What's my point in all this? My point is it can't be billions of years old. We don't have the, the time to have a planet that old. It doesn't work with what we can actually see, real science. The Earth's magnetic strength has declined 10% in the past 150 years and 40% in the last 1,000 years. 40% in the last 1,000 years. It's getting weaker. It cannot be billions of years old. Actually, that gives it an age of 25,000 years max, maximum, based on the magnetic uh, declination. Carbon dating can't work. National Geographic News, Earth's magnetic field is fading. It's weakening 10 times faster throughout the Western Hemisphere. What they don't tell you, okay, uh, let me go back here. The Pangea theory, okay. Uh, I'll go for nine more minutes, we'll have an even hour, then we'll be out of here. So you guys don't kill me. Anyone remember this one in school, Pangea theory? They have this idea that, you know, all the continents fit together and then they broke off and formed all the different continents, okay. So, a couple of things that they don't tell you with the Pangea theory. Africa has been shrunk 35 to 40% to make it fit in that. Mexico and Central America are gone. Let me go back. See it? It's not there. There's no Mexico and Central America. Where's Mexico, Panama, Costa Rica, Guatemala, Honduras, Brazil, Nicaragua, El Salvador? They're not there. Africa is actually nearly twice as big as South America, but they look the same size in the textbooks. Also, what any fifth grader can tell you, if you drain all the water out of the oceans, there's dirt under there. The continents aren't floating on the oceans like lily pods, people, okay? There's actual dirt. They're actually connected. The Earth has a solid crust. It's not hollow underneath the oceans. We're not just floating around on here willy-nilly. Can you imagine the earthquakes we would potentially have, right? The tectonic shift that goes with that? The Earth is spinning over 1,000 miles per hour at its equator. However, the change in the Earth's rotational period was first measured using actual eclipses, of, of all things. The Earth's rotation was slowing down. We first noticed this by Edmund Haley in 1695. So this gives birth to what we see now with the atomic clock. Uh, we keep adding what's called a leap second to account for the rotation of the Earth getting slower, right? So. Anyone have any questions so far? Because I want to end, I have a little bit of time for, for questions. But these are just a few examples of how we are being lied to in our textbooks, in our schools. We're being told that the Earth is 4.6 billion years old when we have countless actual scientific evidence that it's not. It's absolutely not. We're, we're being lied to. And we've just been sitting here taking it the entire time, right? Because why? 
Well, uh, unfortunately, I think we've gotten a lot uh, lazy. I know, and we've gotten lazy. And, it, and it's a lot easier to just kind of go with the flow rather than saying, no, that, that doesn't make any sense. Right, rather than just asking questions on if this is the actual truth, right? Why is this important? Well, like I said, our current state of our country and our world today, we are on absolute fire, people. I, I have never seen anything as divisive, as horrific as this in my life. Now, of course, I wasn't alive during the Vietnam War, but I can imagine that even during that time, it was not as divisive as it is right now. The point is, we have an unbelievably hurting world and country and community. And we are sitting here comfortable knowing that when we die, we are going to spend eternity with our Lord and Savior. And, but these people that we just walk by every single day, what? Because it might be an uncomfortable conversation to have with that checker at Safeway? I don't think that's an excuse. I think that this information is paramount. I think it gives teeth to our faith to where we can have those conversations because like I did 20 some odd years ago, whenever I got saved, now I know that the Bible is true. I 100% know it. I don't believe it. Oh, <laughs> let me rephrase that. I do believe it, <laughs> but I absolutely know it. I have evidential uh, experience. I have science. I have philosophy. I have reason to completely back it up. Are those conversations still awkward for me? Yes! Do I get cussed out? Yep. But it's not like I'm living in Turkey where I can get beheaded for preaching the name of Christ. Worst thing is someone, you know, uses a curse word at me. Oh no, my feelings are hurt. Who cares? You know, the, the point is, we have a world of people that are going to hell and we have the answer. We are literally standing in front of a burning house and we can offer them fire insurance. Do you see my point in, in why that I believe these, these topics and these conversations are so important to have. So I'll end here. Does anybody have any quick questions? I want to get us out on, on, on time. No? We solved all the, the evolutionary problems? <laughs> nice. Well, let's pray real quick, and then we'll head on home. Father, uh, Lord, we just love you, and we thank you so much for the gifts that you've given us. We thank you for your word. We thank you that we can read it freely. Uh, we just ask now as we go out to our community that we would be a blessing and we would be a light to those that we come across, Lord, that you would give us the words to speak. I know we, we stumble and we get uncomfortable, God, but it is your spirit who saves and it's you who speaks through us. Just please give us those opportunities and give us that courage and that nudging to go out. In Christ's name I pray, Lord. Amen.